Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring inspiring conversation with people at the grassroots and the grass tops, doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, or generally striving to make our democracy live up to its promise of a more perfect union. I hope their stories will inspire you to learn more about them or to take action on your own. Head over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I'm speaking with Alex Kramer of Knock for Democracy. Alex is an actor and writer who discovered he had a talent for political organizing after the 2016 election. What started in a living room with a few dozen friends had grown by 2020 to more than 5,000 volunteers who had knocked on countless doors and dialed literally millions of numbers, all in the name of, yes, democracy. Alex and I talk about how making the volunteer experience fun keeps people coming back for more, the power of community experience that feels joyous, connected, and personal, and bringing back the lost art of civic and civil conversation with our fellow citizens. And now here's my conversation with Alex Kramer. Alex Kramer, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thank you so much for having me, Nancy. So Alex, you are here today to talk to me about your group, Knock for Democracy. What exactly is that? So Knock for Democracy is a voter contact organization that is primarily focused on ensuring the best possible volunteer experience so that people can come to our events show up again and again and expect a reliable, easy, accessible, and fun experience. The origin point of the organization, the whole reason we started in the first place was looking around. Myself, our peers seem to lack a reliable place to turn for a volunteer experience that felt fun, that felt welcoming, and that felt like their people were always there and ready to take action together. There are so many amazing volunteer and voter contact organizations out there, but just trying to make sure that people can go to a political event and have the same kind of fun that they would have going out on a Thursday night with their friends or you know, tuning into the latest streaming hit, whatever it may be, because we're not in this, we're just competing with Republicans. We are competing with all of these polls on people's attentions. And being able to provide an experience that draws people in and make sure that they want to come back and that this is an activity they actually want to partake in is critical to making sure that we have the volunteer energy we need to win elections. I love that. Fun and politics don't always go together. So That's true. How did you get involved in the organization? How did it start? Yeah. So like many folks, uh, after Trump's election in 2016, there was that immediate feeling of urgency and a need to get involved in some way or another, and frankly, some level of guilt about lack of involvement in the past. I don't come originally from a political background, and I, I came to this work recognizing my role and my complacency in the moment we found ourselves in in 2016. And so I simply sent out an email to everyone I knew in New York at the time and said, you know, I've talked to a few dozen folks in the last week since this election who are scared and confused and don't know where to turn next or how to best direct their energy. And I said, come to my apartment. I don't know. We don't know. But together, hopefully we could figure something out. And I started having weekly 
meetings in my little studio apartment in Brooklyn. We'd pack in 50 or so people and we would just talk about what we've been hearing, places that we recognized that there were opportunities for taking action. And we brought everyone together and started taking action steps together. We went to protests. We organized small scale canvassing trips. We found avenues online where our collective voice could be greater than any of our individual voices. And that went on for some time. But after, I'd say, a year and a half and and the sort of initial sting of Trump's election waned in the hearts and minds of many, I recognized that the problem was not just about the immediate urgency of the moment. It was about trying to lower the hurdles for activation for folks. All these people who were, you know, at that point, the list of folks had grown to a few hundred who were initially so enthusiastic about getting involved. So many of them had had fallen off as normal life had roared back and they were focused on other things. And so I thought, how do we draw people towards this upcoming midterm push in 2018 in a way that fits in seamlessly with their existing lives? At this point, we were only operating in New York. So, you know, how do you get young New Yorkers to jump in and get involved with political campaigns in a way that doesn't feel so onerous or confusing, frankly? So many people would come to me with a question of like, you know, I want to do something, but I don't know exactly where to go. I don't know what race to get involved in. I don't know how to get there. I don't know who to talk to. And once I'm there, I don't know anyone there. And so I'm just kind of in New Jersey for the afternoon, knocking on doors with a bunch of strangers. And while it feels productive, it doesn't necessarily feel fun. And so as part of this initial group, we built an initiative that then became Knock for Democracy, focused around that midterm push and, and creating an easy way for people to both sign up and be delivered to campaign offices in New Jersey and in a couple of house districts in New York really lowering that bar of entry and creating a community experience. We would you know, build in the transportation logistics and have hordes of 50 to 100 to 150 folks who would gather together, whether to go up upstate to Delgado's district in, in New York 19, down to knock on doors for Max Rose, Tom Malinowski, Mikey Sherrill, all of those candidates in 2018 in swing house districts, bringing folks together to do that work in a way that was fun. That was the calling card in in the very beginning. And people would come back again and again, being like, this community is one that I want to be a part of in an ongoing way. So after 2018, this thing that we had planned to be a one-off initiative around the midterms, there was such a demand for that community to continue. And so we've kept it up. And we obviously, for many reasons, had to pivot to phone banking in 2020. The name Knock for Democracy shifted in its salience but we expanded significantly, really trying to, to deliver again on that, that community-centric focus. Great. I definitely want to talk about your pivot, about 2020, about all that, but let's rewind for one second. You said you didn't have any meaningful experience in political organizing before this. What is your background? So I have worked and continue to work as an actor and writer, and that has been where I come to this work from initially. And how has that background helped you in this work? Well, that is really, honestly, I think is the crux of why our operation has been successful in the way that it has. I think in terms of creating fun political events, the event piece is often 
left on the sidelines, thinking about this as an experience, like you are going to the theater. That is how we approach the work. And the folks who who have come on board and, and are on the leadership team, most of them have backgrounds in the arts, in entertainment, in theater. And so that event curation focus is critical to building experiences that people want to come back to. There's no reason why showing up to knock on doors or make calls for a political candidate shouldn't feel as fun and exciting as a night out at the theater. There's absolutely no reason it shouldn't feel that way. And it just, it isn't something that folks have considered. And, you know, sometimes it often is, it's with good reason. There's limited bandwidth. There's a lot of focus placed on on strategy and and how these conversations with voters are playing out, which is also a, a piece of what we're doing. But the event experience for the volunteer is not given the same level of consideration. And I think if we are to build a culture of volunteerism, just as there is a culture of entertainment viewing, we need to give consideration to how these events are run and to create volunteer retention where we have volunteers who are experienced and coming back again and again to do this work, which is has been proven to be so critical in terms of driving numbers, having folks that are coming back and are experienced and are not just one-off volunteers. They know how to have these conversations. They know how to do the work in the right way. Right. Of course. Retention is critical to that. And building that retention really is comes down to creating an experience that people enjoy. Well, I mean, I'd love to hear about this how you make it fun. I mean, phone banking and knocking on doors are not inherently fun. In fact, they can be really frustrating. Phone banking, you might get one person who answers and, you know, 20 calls or 30 calls and knocking on doors. Sometimes you see them peek out of their blinds and, and then, you know, they don't answer the door. So what do you do that makes this experience so different? That question is is well-framed because I think the issue with canvassing and phone banking and, and these volunteering experiences, for the most part, is that they are individual-driven experiences. You go, maybe you have a partner you're knocking on doors with, but your day goes how well your individual day goes in terms of talking to voters. And so building in a true collective aspect into the work is really the crux of what's important. In the same way that going to theater, you sit in the audience and you're having a shared experience with hundreds, even thousands of people watching this thing, that emotional resonance of what's happening on stage is made so much more powerful by the collective. In that same vein, going out and doing a canvassing trip on a bus with 100 people, many of who you know from past canvassing trips, or hopping on a phone bank with 500 folks, getting trained all together, stopping at a midpoint to have a snack, share stories, share pros and cons from the conversations you've been having, hearing the great things that are happening to someone else in your canvassing group or your phone banking Zoom room on their calls and recognizing that the experience that all of us are having, while I may not have connected to many voters today, the 400 of us have connected with thousands of people and have had so many meaningful conversations. And then to include, and and this is really important too, that story sharing element, both at the midpoint and at the end of our Zoom phone banking sessions. We make a point of including story sharebacks where folks who have had good calls, challenging calls, interesting learning calls, have an opportunity to share with the full group 
what they experience on the phones. Not only does that drive that collective sense of impact, but it also is so important for when folks are coming back again and again, they are learning from each other's calls. And so, you know, again, I might've had an easy go of it on, on the phones today, but Nancy, you had a couple of tough calls and you jump into the story share and you say, you know, I had this experience. I talked to this voter and I used this tactic and it didn't really go over that well. It had worked in this district, but it had, it isn't really working for me in this district. And I take that in and I come back next time. And when I have a tougher day, I am buoyed by that collective experience and the sharing of those stories that enables me to fold all of that into my understanding of how these conversations can work effectively. And so it's great for the fun of it. The collective is important for the fun of it. And it is also so important for building our collective efficacy as volunteers. Absolutely. It makes you more resilient. And and also building a community where you don't feel like just a random person with a random group does make a huge difference. I mean, I've seen it in a lot of different forms of activism. So it says that on your background materials, and you alluded to this as well, that your volunteers are mostly millennials and Gen Zers, which I think is funny because they hate talking on the phone. I have three of them, three Gen Zers, I guess. So that's impressive. You get them to do that. But I did check out your Twitter and I saw Mandy Patinkin on it. So you've got some old folks too. (laughs) Yeah, we're definitely a cross-generational organization and, and we really pride ourselves in that. I think it is fair to say that our target demographic is folks probably 16 to 40. One, because the folks who need to get involved in this work in order for us to sustain it for many decades into the future, that's who we need to target. We need to build in this this culture of volunteering early. But it's so valuable for all the young folks on the Zoom to see this multi-generational range and recognize that this is work that is going to be ongoing for the rest of our lives. This is not a fleeting thing that we do when we have time and energy when we're young. This is something that we need to sustain. Or when there's just a huge crisis and then suddenly everyone disappears back into the woodwork. Right. This is about continuous, rigorous commitment to democratic causes. And I say democratic as in small d democratic. I I think we are a very openly partisan and left-leaning organization, but we're here out of a belief in the value of conversation in our democratic system and a real recognition of how that has faltered over time and how our inability to connect across difference, not just political difference, but demographic difference, geographic difference. And we see that, especially in the context of our phone banks, we're calling all over the country. Um, The ability to bring conversation back into the equation is so powerful. And it is something that young and old and everyone in between can unite around. And it's really important to us that we we sustain that going forward. Okay. So you pivoted in 2020 to phone banking and was that an easy pivot? What are the pluses and minuses do you see since you've done both canvassing and phone banking? Yeah, it's funny because we had always sworn that we would never do anything but door-to-door canvassing. You know, we viewed it as a place where one, the most sort of the strongest sense of collective impact could be created. It is extremely high impact in terms of value add per conversation. 
And it's just an amazing opportunity to speak to voters face to face and not just make an impact on potentially on the way they're going to vote or the way they're thinking about the issues, but really in person having an impact on how you think about the issues and recognizing that there is such a spectrum of understanding even around a certain particular issue or a candidate. And we felt, you know, oh, that the only way that we can make that happen is on someone's doorstep. And then 2020 hit and we recognized that there wasn't another option and we shifted to phone banking. And it was remarkable the degree to which we were able to create that same feeling on the phones. Now, the experience of talking to a voter face-to-face is certainly removed. But the experience of gathering with people on Zoom, if you curate the experience in the right kind of way, it is amazing the degree to which you can feel part of a collective on Zoom. And it's hard and it is detailed-oriented work to make a Zoom space feel that way, to make a Zoom space something that people actually want to be a part of. But people talked about Knock for Democracy Zooms as the best part of their week during the pandemic. And I think a real part of that is it doesn't have that same high touch feeling as you might have being out on a a cold fall day canvassing in Pennsylvania. But it is an opportunity to see hundreds of faces gathered to hear stories from dozens of people about their life experiences. Our Zoom chat is always extremely active and people are telling jokes in the chat and and sharing ideas back and forth and sharing information. And it is a real hub of connectivity. And then also, you know, after our final story share, it's worth adding, we always have a dance party at the end of our Zooms. It's all very silly and fun in a way that I think was so needed in 2020 while we were also isolated, but we've recognized the value of that in a continuing way. I think all of us go about our lives, even when we're, you know, back out in the world in a way that's not always really intimately in touch with other people and creating a forum where people can come together and share really vulnerable stories about themselves and their experiences and the conversations they're having, that can happen on the phones just as well as it can happen in person. And so we're so committed to continuing both streams of the work going forward. So when you are reaching out to voters, either by knocking doors or ringing phones, what do the conversations sound like? Are you using scripts from the campaigns for the most part? Yeah. So we are working together with sometimes with campaigns, sometimes with local organizations who have been you know, doing this work in their communities for decades. And we really take their leads on strategy in terms of the specific types of conversations that they want us to be having because they know the voters better than we do. We are predominantly an out-of-state organization because most of our constituents are in you know major urban centers where there aren't necessarily swing elections happening, we are generally getting involved in places where only a number of our volunteers live. And when you're doing that, it is so important to be really mindful of approaching any given community on their terms and not on ours. And so we work really extensively with our partners, whether that is campaigns or local organizations, to figure out 
exactly how we can best interface with their desired messaging. And that is a critical starting point. But as far as what sort of we add to the training, we really are focused on engendering a different type of conversation than your typical box checking GOTV, are you or are you not voting for X candidate type of conversation. We really, and explicitly in our trainings, encourage folks to stay in that 30-minute conversation, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to be going in the right direction, because there's so much value in providing additional information and just being a set of empathetic ears for someone who is potentially struggling with any number of things in their lives to talk to. So you get people to speak to talk for 30 minutes? Absolutely. Yeah. We, we've had volunteers have conversations with voters for as long as an hour, hour, 20 minutes. Sometimes it's an hour and a half conversation. Someone was 100% in the opposite direction, definitely not going to vote for our candidate. And over the course of a conversation, recognize that like their understandings of what our candidate stood for were flawed and, and based on information they'd been getting from a very particular source. And being able to walk through resources online with someone else on the phone and talk specifically about issues, someone who could fact check certain information, provide alternative avenues for understanding. We've seen people over the course of hour and a half conversations flip their vote. That's incredible. Yeah. And it's, you know, and and sometimes it's about getting lucky who you catch on on what day. And sometimes that hour and a half conversation ends in the same place that it started. But we always say that no matter what, both people in the conversation, the volunteer and the voter are better off for having had it. And we would rather people take the time to really dig in and engage than to recognize that uh, maybe there's not a democratic vote here and move on. That engagement in and of itself irrespective of outcomes is so important. Absolutely. Is this what is sometimes referred to as deep canvassing? Yeah, it is. You know, we're in a complicated in-between position, right? Because we're working in partnerships with these campaigns and local organizations, and we are very specifically working to achieve their messaging goals. So we're not, you know, straying far afield from the script or implementing our own deep canvassing scripts. But we are working to take these concepts that are inherent to the practice of deep canvassing that we believe in so strongly and imbue these existing scripts with those concepts and principles. How do you decide which races to support? Is there a particular focus? Is it candidates from swing states? So you mentioned that. Do you do state races, local races, federal races? What makes someone special enough for you to get on board? It's generally a mix of factors. And as always, the strategy has to shift across election cycles. But first and foremost, we're looking for places where we can make concurrent up and down ballot impacts. You know, we are looking to focus, you know, where we can in down ballot races within states that have significant up ballot impacts. In 2020, that looked for the most part like finding swing house districts in places where there was a a significant Senate race up ballot. In 2018, that simply looked like finding local house races that looked like they were going to have the 
tightest margins come election day. So we are looking for places where, you know, our small and mighty community can one, make a meaningful impact in terms of upending election outcomes, but also where that impact can reverberate in multiple directions up and down ballot. And on the state level, In 2022, that is going to be a more significant focus on our end, specifically around governorships in states where there have been overt attempts at election subversion over the past year, and making sure that we shore up at least one branch of state governments in those states where legislatures have run rampant. So that is going to be a a crucial pillar of our strategy going forward. Great. Yes, I want to talk about strategy going forward. But I do want to give you a chance to talk about your numbers in 2020, because I know they're super impressive. You started with like a few people in your studio apartment. How many volunteers did you have in the 2020 election cycle? How many calls did you make? So we had 12,000 volunteer shifts and made nearly 3 million calls in the 2020 cycle. And you know, we're really jazzed about those numbers, but I think the retention numbers speak more significantly to what we are really hoping to achieve. Obviously, the big picture outcome numbers are are huge, but making sure that we have a community where folks are coming back again and again is critical. And a full 20% of our volunteer base joined more than five events. That is a really, truly unprecedented number in this kind of work getting 20% of a nearly 6,000 person list to come back again and again. We had volunteers join for as many as 65, 70, 75 shifts during the last cycle. And it really is, it is a community practice. It is not just people recognizing that there's an election coming up and they have an obligation to do this work. We are building a culture of continued sustained engagement, which is what we're all about. And we're really excited to see that borne out in the numbers. That's great. I mean, you're about to have a test in 2022, because of course, 2020 was sort of an existential crisis. And everybody was feeling the need to do something. Midterms are historically, you know, just lower energy. And also, I think we're dealing with a sort of exhausted populace. So Do you feel like you're going to get the same kind of volunteer enthusiasm? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely going to be a challenge, but we believe that the existential threat of this election is just as pressing as the last. So really, it comes down to to a messaging challenge, we feel. We have this committed volunteer base, but it's a question of if we can continue to grow and expand. Of course, people are going to fall off from 2020, but can we add new folks to the mix in 2022 who recognize the urgency of this fight. And that is going to be a real challenge. We've seen that it's been a challenge on the national stage. President Biden struggled with it. Congressional Democrats have struggled with it. It is a real challenge to encourage people to recognize exactly what's at stake when we have, we're dealing with an absolute onslaught for four plus years. And I'm excited about it. That is for me and my acting and writing background, the messaging part of it is, you know, just like creating and curating these these exceptional events, building collective messaging that is inspiring and gets people to to stick with the fight is is fun, frankly, and is hard but 
but I think we're up for it. Where are you planning on focusing your efforts this year, 2022, like canvassing efforts and phone banking efforts? So our canvassing efforts, because our New York base is strongest at this point, we're continuing to expand across the country. And that was a great piece of what the phone banking allowed. People could join us from anywhere in the country and frankly, anywhere in the world last cycle. So we're building elsewhere, but we really do have our strongest core base in New York City. And that base will be deployed for canvassing pretty much exclusively to Pennsylvania this cycle. The up and down ballot impacts there are going to be significant from a highly contested Senate race to a governor's race to closely fought state legislatures, a lot of key house seats at play. Pennsylvania is going to be critical. So we'll be really focusing our canvassing energy there. And then as far as phone banking goes, we are still determining our final list of states. But like I said, we're, we're looking at places where there are a combination of key Senate races, key governor seats that are being contested, and House seats that you know we're still sort of parsing out the latest and redistricting and, and seeing where there's going to be competitive seats. And it really is, is frustrating to see how gerrymandering not only has shifted the balance of power on a partisan level, but has also just eliminated so many competitive House districts from the map. Georgia will definitely be on the map. Arizona, Wisconsin will certainly be in there as well. But also, you know, we're looking at North Carolina, we're looking at Nevada, we're looking at Michigan, all as places where these multiple impacts can be felt. So you interface all the time with regular voters, regular people in America, in swing districts and battleground states, and you're basically boots on the ground. What kind of insight does that give you into the current mood of the Democratic electorate? Well, to be perfectly honest, we have not been running events in the last couple of months. So I I can't speak to where folks are at at the moment. But I think in general, the thing that we feel most often is that folks are hungry for outreach. I think independent of what the political mood might be, when you get someone on the phone or you talk to someone on their doorstep, contrary to what many people feel like, oh, no one wants to hear from me. You know, no one wants to get my call or have me knock on their door. Why would I even bother? I'm just going to get shut down all day. People are really eager to connect and really eager to share what's going on in their communities and, and seek help with what they see are the problems that they're dealing with locally or what they see as national trends that are impacting their personal well-being. And that is a consistent fact again and again, and is really a testament to how important it is to get involved early in these races and start talking to people now when they are not getting inundated with 25 calls and just not answering the phone, talking to folks who absolutely have very real concerns about the way things stand in this country regardless of partisan belief and where they believe certain elected leaders are taking the country. Folks have everyday concerns that are not necessarily addressed by a phone call or a conversation with a volunteer, but are at least able to be aired. And as we all know, when we're having some issue in our lives, to be able to sit down and talk to someone about it, it alleviates that burden to 
a significant extent. And that's not to say that that is a substitute for real and tangible policy solutions to these problems. But giving people the sense that they actually have a connection to their government, that they actually have a connection to this system that we're all operating in, and they are not some anonymous piece living in whatever county they live in. They are actually someone who is cared for as part of the system. That is of enormous value at any point in time. And the fact that you know, we can do our best to mobilize as many people to give people that connection point. That is what drives the work for me every day. So given what you see and hear and know from your experience, if you had a direct line to the DNC, what advice would you give them on strategy going forward? I would put so much more money and intention into field efforts, early field efforts, early person-to-person outreach. I think, you know, we saw last cycle an extraordinary amount of money poured in to these races, often to little or no, or sometimes detrimental effect. And I think often that was because that money was being poured into big TV ad campaigns in the last couple of weeks that got really nasty and really have been shown, you know, while they have really expansive reach, don't have the same hold on voters' hearts and minds as a conversation can have. And it is hard. (laughs) Organizing is hard. Getting people to doors is difficult and time intensive, but it is so valuable. And it is not just valuable in terms of winning elections. It is valuable in terms of reinvigorating the fabric of how we communicate with each other as a country. So it sounds like this experience is very rewarding for your volunteers. What's been most rewarding for you? That's a great question. In starting Knock for Democracy, I believe that there was space in the political conversation for a kind of community experience that didn't previously exist a space that felt joyous and connected and personal and not just like all of us were joining in this effort because we had to, but ultimately we were just pieces working towards an electoral goal. And it has been so rewarding to see that borne out. It has been so exciting to see so many people as enthusiastic as they've been about building that kind of community and coming back to it again and again. And I think the heart of that is that we are placing these conversations at the center of the work. The values of how we conduct ourselves with voters really are filtering out to the way that we are conducting ourselves together as a community. There's so much generosity of spirit. There's so much empathy and willingness to listen and be patient with everyone in this community. And I never could have imagined something so organically special <laughs> coming together in the way that it has. And it's, and it's really been exciting to watch it evolve. And how are you funding all this? Through a combination of larger dollar and smaller dollar fundraising campaigns. We've been in conversations with donors over the past few months and have had great success talking about 
how this community experience is driving successful electoral outcomes in a real and meaningful way. But we also are relying on that volunteer community now. We're starting a small dollar bundling program where folks who are really effective ambassadors for the work that we do already, who have spent months of their lives already on our Zooms speaking to the value of of the work that we do together, we're going to be in short order deploying some of those folks to go out to their networks and in small increments, whether it's $10 here, $20 here, maybe as much as $500 here, see what money they can bring together and bring back into the fold so that we can really build a lasting infrastructure that can continue forward across many years. You know, this has been an entirely volunteer run operation up until this point. Nobody on our team has been paid for this work and it has been an absolutely staggering effort on the part of a small number of people to keep this thing going. And as we all know, while volunteer efforts are noble and noteworthy, you know, at a certain point they can't sustain themselves because so many people have so many considerations to take care of in their lives. And so making sure that we're able to offer people a meaningful living wage for this work is really, really important. So that is really the core of what this fundraising effort is for is you know, if we are going to continue this work in the lasting way that we want, both during and outside of election cycles, we need the infrastructure backbone to keep that alive. And also the running of our events. There are costs to getting hundreds of voters out (laughs) to knock on doors in Pennsylvania, and those costs are not insignificant. And that really is a huge piece of the puzzle for us is, you know, in lowering those barriers to entry and making it so that anyone can get involved with this work, no matter their financial means, no matter their abilities to manage the logistics of transportation or whatever it may be. We really want to take care of all those loose ends for folks. So we are really dead set on providing that transportation and making sure that everyone is able to get on a bus and get where they need to get, both on the canvassing side and and on the phone banking side, that internal infrastructure that allows for that high touch communication is critical to what we're doing too. Great. So how can people learn more about Knock for Democracy and get involved and maybe even make a donation? We would love folks to go to knockfordemocracy.org. You will see a nice, shiny donate button on that website. There's also a form where you can put in your info so you can get on our mailing list. We are going to have events upcoming in very short order, and we would be thrilled to have folks on board. But for any you know potential donors out there, we would be thrilled to have your support. We really are so proud of this community we're building, and we have seen extraordinary impacts over the past two election cycles, both in 2018 and 2020, and would be so grateful for your help in helping to continue this work because we really cannot do it without the funds that we need to survive. So. Great. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. I loved hearing about this community you've built and the impact you're having. So keep it up and you may very well see me on a bus to Pennsylvania. (laughs) We would love to have you. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.